0: Father, we thank you that you're the living God, that we worship you this morning for you are worthy. We need you, Lord, this morning. Every day we need you in your presence, your power. And uh, I ask that you would use me as a vessel to speak your word. It's such a privilege, and I'm insufficient in it, in myself, I thank you that you have given us your Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, and all we would do. So guide my words, I pray. Amen. It's been uh, a lot of years since I've been up on a pulpit preaching, so um, it's totally refreshing. I love it, and uh, because you have to depend so much on the Lord when you do it. Um, there are ways that people remind themselves of things that are really important to them. Uh, the old picture is of, I don't know if you remember, they used to tie a string around your finger so you wouldn't forget. Today, we have many things. Well, still some people might even write on their hands because they forget something. Uh, I've done that. Uh, my wife's been trying to teach me about bullet journals, which helps me to remember things. Uh, People use Google calendars to remind themselves or they download a reminder app that you can get online. And even us in the church, we have a planning center. It tells me I'm supposed to be here this morning at nine o'clock. Why do we need to be reminded of things in our lives? Well, we forget or our minds are cluttered. We're distracted. Why we do the Lord's Supper every time to remind us of what the Lord has done for us. There's one study that I read that stated we remember 10% of what we read. We remember 20% of what we hear. 30% of what we see. 50% of what we see and hear. 70% of what we discuss with others. And I would say, small group, if you're in small group, (laughs) You remember a lot more when you discuss it in your small group. 70%, they say. 80% of what we experience personally, and 90% of what we teach someone else. Now, I know when you read a list like this, I know for sure that, that it varies. If you're my age, you're down the list of remembering. If you're younger, you probably can remember better than me. Back in the New Testament times, the way they remembered things was through hearing and reading. There were no journals, no Google Calendar, nothing to remind them. When something was important to someone, they wrote letters to remind readers of what was important to them. Apostle Peter wanted to remind Christians of what was important to him. He wanted to stir them up to certain truths. If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, I'm going to read verses 12 to 15. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will soon will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time to recall these things. Now, what was important to Peter that he intends always to remind them? What qualities was he referring to? And we'll turn in your to the verses that are before in verses 1 to 11 to understand the context. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He wanted to remind them of certain truths. And if you read the whole book of Peter, 2 Peter, he's actually um, stating that there were certain things that were happening in his time and that he wanted to emphasize certain truths in the way that they would live. And uh, just to give you a picture of the book, um, Peter says, I didn't bring these things among you as just a myth or an idea. But he says, I was a witness of the power and coming of Christ in his first coming. And that, the, that his witness, plus the testimony of the Old Testament, the scriptures that were inspired by the spirit of God, um, they were a witness to the truth of what he was saying. And then he goes on in chapter 2 saying that there will be people that will come, like the Old Testament false prophets. There will be false teachers that were coming into the church. And he describes them in some detail in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he basically goes and reminds them that there will be scoffers coming in the end times who will say, where is his promise? And he states certain facts that the Lord is coming and the end will come. And he exhorts Christians to uh, be holy and ready for that day. Looking in our context in the first part, in um, verse 1, he says... He's writing to Jewish Christians in general and not to any specific city or church, but he says that those believers who obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter. These were believers and he was writing to them and he was basically exhorting them in verses 3 to 11 to make every effort to grow in godliness through God's provision in Christ. Peter then intentionally reminds them to develop these qualities of knowledge, love, uh, self-control, brotherly love, all those characteristics that they would grow into them and that they would be fruitful and effective as a Christian. And the foundation of living a godly life is God's gracious provision. That's the foundation. And if you look at verse 3, it says... His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to or by his own glory and excellence. My first first point is through the knowledge of Jesus we have all the power we need. A key word is knowledge. Someone has said that there are two kinds of Knowledge. Uh, Peter uses this word knowledge three times in the first chapter. And it's always referring to God. We can have knowledge about an object like a book or a subject. We can get involved in studying it, learning about it. And it's a first kind of knowledge that's more of one-sided where you're doing the things to learn, study, to know about it. The second kind of knowledge is the knowledge that concerns a person. Knowing a person involves interaction with them. It is much more complex. Um, to illustrate, there are people here I only know by face. I, I wouldn't know anything more about you. There's some people here that I know by name. Okay, there are other people who I've gotten to mingle with and to know as a person what they do, their work, how they are in ministry. I even heard some of you testifying about your salvation. Then there are others, like in our small group, that I know better than anybody else here because of the interaction that I have with them. I want to bring out a point here in knowing a person. Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words states that the Greek word here, knowledge, is a fuller or a full knowledge, a great greater participation by the knower and the object known, thus more powerfully influences him. Obviously, if somebody says, "I have a knowledge of Jesus," you're not talking about a simple person to know. It's very complex because he's God. Knowledge of Jesus is more than just studying, knowing about him. There may be some here, you know a lot about Jesus, but you really don't know him. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packard explains First, knowing God is a matter of personal dealings, as is direct acquaintance with personal beings. This personal dealings involves listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself, noting God's nature and character as his word and works reveal, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands, rejoicing, sorry, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown in thus approaching you and drawing you into this divine fellowship. Second, Knowing God is a matter of personal involvement in mind, will, and feeling. Knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one. and could not indeed be a deep relation between person were it not soul. The third, knowing God is a matter of grace. It is a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God. And God's word confirms that in Galatians 4.9, which says, But now that you have come to know God, Paul says, or rather, to be known by God. This knowledge of him is a channel to divine power to us, that is, every believer who has a living relationship with the Lord. This power grants us all things, thinking of all things like The ministry of Jesus Christ even today now at the right hand of the Father. And the ministry he has and the power toward us. The word of God and the power in the word of God. The Holy Spirit and his presence within us. All these things in relationship to living godly in this world. This divine power cannot be measured. It cannot be depleted. God's power is unending. He never loses any energy, power or anything. He's divine. This power gives us new life and energy, uh, energizes us to be holy. But how does knowledge of Jesus relate to his divine power? Let me illustrate this. Some people think that driving car is powerful. And um, could you imagine me giving my keys to my eight, let's say I had an eight-year-old son. I don't have one now, but I gave my keys to him and said, go and take my car for a joyride. drive wherever you want to go. That would be dangerous for him or for anybody else on the road. The normal process would be that he has to be 16 years of age, write a vision test and a knowledge test about the rules of the road and science to get his or her G1. Then he has to do a road test for G2. And finally take another road test to get his G. Involved in this process is the practical driving, usually through driver's training. Think of this spiritually. Our text says that he has granted us divine power. Yet we need to know how him deeper to study and learn God, to learn about his character, his purpose, as he has given his word to prepare us for living in this fallen world. As we learn his word, we will face practical training by a sovereign God in the difficulties of life. His power will become more our experience. What training is God taking you through right now? What is he doing right now through your circumstances? What difficulty is in your life right now? I ask the question, how does this divine power work in our lives? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God's mighty power works through our weakness, so it would be obvious that it is God's power and not our own. How many times do we want to be strong on the outside but not to be weak? How can God show his glory in Some person who's proud and strong, he can't. He will not share his glory with anyone else. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We all experience weakness of body, the pull of the flesh, temptations, Physical weakness, trials, conflicts in relationships, and ask, where is God's power to us? Is it in our weakness? Look at Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 12. He had visions, he had revelations, he had, he had a real experience with God, and God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? To keep him from being exalted and proud. He pleaded with God three times. And what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How many times do we ask for power and deliverance when we need to learn that God's power is perfected in weakness? Paul needed to learn this. The Apostle Paul His response was, I I will gladly boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Ask yourself the question, do I glory in my weaknesses so that God's power may rest upon me? Lord, may we learn to do so more in our lives. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses is Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wonderful verse, isn't it? How real is it actually to you? I think about myself when I was a young Christian. This was one of my verse, first verses I learned and memorized, was 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I thought that's great, beautiful verse. Guess what? God took me to task on that verse. So I had a, I did, I was just a very shy guy. I didn't want to be in any leadership or anything, and I was in a youth group and. Elections came up, and two guys' names came up, and one of them were mine. And I had just been recovering from a neurosis, which was the fear of people. And I thought, yeah, right, Lord, why would you be doing that to me? So they asked us to go and leave the room, and they had to vote about who would stand for president of the youth. And I remember saying to God, why are you doing this? And God saying, well, you just learned that verse. <laughs> I went, oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Are you going to obey? Well, I did obey. I did. I said, okay, Lord, whatever happens. I honestly we came out and I was voted as president of the youth. Did I ever feel like I was about this tall? What am I going to do, Lord? How am I going to lead this group? And all, all that. The reality of all I'm trying to bring out in this relationship of this verse is that you have to live the word of God. And to live the word of God means you have to be willing to die to yourself. Think of God's power in the way in people's dealing with people and circumstances. We all go through difficult times. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, in which he refers to developing godliness, says, quote, God uses three primary catalysts for changing us and conforming us to Christ's likeness but only one is largely under our control. One catalyst the Lord uses to change us is people. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Sometimes God uses our friends. Sometimes he uses our enemies to follow away our rough, ungodly edges. Parents, children, spouses, co-workers, customers at work. Teachers, neighbors, pastors. God changes us through these people. His power works through these people. Another change agent God uses in our lives is circumstances. Financial pressures, physical conditions, even the weather are used in the hands of divine providence to stimulate his elect toward holiness. Then there is the catalyst of spiritual disciplines is the one thing that we can be control of as a means of receiving his grace and growing in godliness. This divine power works through people and circumstances to change us so we become more godly. Scripture declares in Romans 828 29, And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, all things work together for good. Or God works in all things for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Just think of this. God's power is so working in life for our good. We don't think so many times because we can't see it. We can't see God working. But scripture clearly teaches that He's working all things. That's the reason why we can say and obey the command and everything give thanks. Because we believe that He's sovereign. Think of this scripture in Psalm 103 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That means over everything. In chaos, in difficulty, God rules. It's just we don't believe he rules. And so we fight and we argue and we have struggles. Secondly, in verse 4, he says by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. My second point is, through the promises of Jesus, we may partake of his divine nature. The channel to partaking in God's divine nature is his promises. These promises come by means of his glory and virtue. His very nature, his attributes, the power of Jesus Christ. All those promises come through him. Some have said that the promise is as good as the person behind it. Think of the the character of God and his promises right from Genesis 3.15, right through the Old Testament, New Testament. Has God ever failed in his promise? Sometimes it seems that way. Someone has estimated there are over 30,000 promises in the Bible. I'm not going to cover them all today. I'll just take a few uh, we'll give you some examples. Abraham in Romans 4 18 to 21 it says, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do what he had promised. I asked the six and seven-year-olds in his Sunday school why they believed, In God's promise of Romans 8, concerning nothing could separate a Christian from God's love. Then their answer obviously was, he's God. Well, that's pretty simple. And I I love the the material they're using in Sunday school on the promises of God. That's what they're doing for the curriculum. and I I was just blown away. I I enjoyed even doing the class that one uh, week. But think about how promises can fail humanly. A parent may promise to take a son or daughter to a game, but on the day off, get sick, and so the promise is not kept. Why? Because we humans are not in control of life. On the other hand, God is sovereign. All-powerful, all-knowing, can fulfill every promise. Humans change their minds about a promise. God does not change his mind. Humans make false promises, lying, whereas God cannot lie. Humans may be unfaithful, God is never unfaithful to his word or to his people. Think of the verse that many of us learned: is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is f- faithful to forgive. Not I ask and he'll say maybe next month, maybe some other time. No, when I confess my sin, he forgives. You may ask, why does God not seem to answer some promises? And Which is a good question. There seems to be some promises which we may struggle with. Why, why isn't it happening? Peter answers this in chapter 3. I won't go into reading all the verses. But in the first part, he again says about, I'm going to remind you about something. Reminds his readers about the predictions of the prophets and commands of the Lord through the apostles about the last days that the coming of scoffers who will say in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, where is the promise of his coming? Everything has been the same all along since the beginning of creation. He's not keeping it. They're scoffing that he hasn't answered his promise. You may ask that question yourself. Where's his promise? Why isn't he fulfilling this promise that he said he would? And I I have to say that sometimes we think about a promise, but we really actually don't know the character of God well enough to know the answer to that. And, And none of us actually know God's thoughts totally or his ways totally. As Isaiah says, his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways above our ways. We're all constantly learning what God's like. But you just think, why isn't he answering my healing Why am I lacking power? Why is there weakness in my life? And Peter gives us some particular answer to the question that they ask. Where is his promise of his coming? And he points out a few facts in uh, chapter 3, if you look at it. And basically, he says, things have been since the creation, but they haven't been continually going. God spoke by his word, and there was the flood and the judgment. Then he says by the same word that at the end of the days there will be judgment by fire. And he points out in verse 8 another factor. One day with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Time is different with God as the eternal. But for us, we're finding it difficult. Because time for us, we're very... when we understand promises, we have to understand God's time and purpose. Verse 9 talks about his purpose. Why doesn't he come right away? Because he has a purpose of redeeming his elect. And there's times where we pray for people and saying, why is it not happening? God is working. He is answering prayer, but in his time and in his purpose and his way. Consider the reasons. His time, his purpose. Remember, God's different than us. Time and promises. Another reference I just want to look at is time and promises. Have nothing to do, in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. This is called the spiritual disciplines. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Spiritual disciplines hold promise for now. The power in the word, in prayer, all the disciplines that we practice, they are beneficial for us today. They help us to grow today. But they are also beneficial for when the end is in the presence of the Lord. Some promises are for now, and some are for the future. And the one quote I will make of the future promise is in Second Peter 3.10, which says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All promises must be understand, understood. In relationship to knowing the very character of God himself. Give you an example. We talk about wisdom. People ask, well, I need wisdom. And I would re- recommend reading First James. Verse 5 to 8. Where it says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And we say, wonderful. It actually even says he's generous. He just so freely wants to give wisdom. Anybody here needs wisdom? Yeah. I need wisdom. Everybody. Do we ask God for wisdom? He gives it generously. But there's a condition to this promise. There's one thing that pleases God. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So in James, he goes on to say, Don't let him doubt. If you doubt, you're not getting anything from God. That's understanding the, na- the nature of God. We need to know that his promises are there, but there are conditions. Example, temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 12 and 13 talks about, you know, take heed that you think you stand, lest you fall. And then he says, there's no temptation but such as is common to man. All of us, all here, face temptation. All of us. God is faithful that when we are tempted, he said he will provide a way of escape. And that's a promise. Is there a condition to this? Is God faithful always? Yes, he is always faithful. Will he allow us to fall? Yes, he will allow us to fall. But think about this. This really struck me. Jesus, when I fall in temptation... He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for me so that I don't fail in my faith. Peter's own experience, just think about Peter himself. He he said, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm I'm not going to deny you. He he didn't think so. But he was very weak. He didn't realize himself. But the interesting thing is that in Luke it says, Jesus said to Peter, he says, Satan has sought to get you, make you fall. But he says, I have prayed for you so that when you return, you will strengthen the brethren. And I know from my own personal experience, I have fallen. I have hurt. I have gone through things where, yeah, in temptation. But, you know, the Lord is at the right hand interceding for me. And he never fails. So if you're here and you have gone through that and you've really fallen through. Recognize that he's there standing for you. Peter calls the Lord's promises precious or valuable. It's like a father gives his son a promise. To his son it is precious personal relational. When a specific promise is experienced in one's life it becomes precious to them. It doesn't become precious to them because you just have it in your mind. It is when you experience God in scriptures, in obedience, in life, that a promise becomes so special to you. You will stand on it. Think of the king of kings freely giving us his promises. That's awesome. His promises are very great. They give every believer in Christ the means in partaking of his divine nature. How great are they? Are how great are they? One commentary states this: freedom from sin's dominion. Sin's power has been broken, and we are free. Grace that is sufficient, as Paul talked about in two Corinthians. Power to obey his commands in Philippians four. Victory over the devil. We can resist the devil. And he will flee from us. Escape when tempted. Forgiveness when we confess our sins. And forgetfulness too. Response when we call. When we call on the Lord. He answers. These are promises to help us escape from the corruption of the world. Sexual sin, drunkenness, strife, sinful desires, selfishness, pleasures. It is this through his divine nature that we escape these things. These promises are the way through which we we partake of his nature, his presence by the Holy Spirit. Peter can remember the promise of the Father and the Son receiving the promise of Pentecost of pouring out his Holy Spirit. This same Spirit dwells within every believer and transforms us from glory to glory. As we look at him, as we look in his word, as we meet with him, he transforms us. The Spirit is the promised helper, one who teaches and illumines his very words. How precious are God's promises to you? Think about it. How have you personally memorized Scripture? Have you had dealings with God where the word of God becomes real to you? Or is it just some, you know about it, but there's no relational interaction between you and God and his word. Hebrews 4.16 is a favorite verse of mine. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Think about this. I use this verse every day. I come near to God and I have this interaction with God. I say, God, I need your mercy because I know I'm going to fail today. I'm going to do something wrong. My kids know about it. Uh, I need his mercy because mercy is shown to those who sin still, who need forgiveness. I need his grace because I need his power and the working to do the right thing. So I go to him every day in the interaction and prayer and say, would you give me, I need it. And it says with confidence, why? Because if you read the verses before, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He stands for me. And therefore, I have the confidence to receive these things from him. But I need to go to him every day and say, I need you. I need you every day. Let's apply these promises to salvation. A familiar scripture that everybody knows, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this verse the verse we use for declaring the salvation of God, God takes the initiative here in this whole relationship. He sent his son. He takes the initiative of reaching out to us. We do not seek him. There's no one that seeks God. He seeks us. He puts us in the corners of life and squeezes us because he loves us enough to get our attention so that we can hear and say by the, his spirit, through the word, through others, that you need God. You are sinful. You are selfish. You're going your own way. What are you doing with your life? God does this to us. He brings us to a place of repentance and faith in him. That every person here can experience this reality of being saved from yourself. Giving your life over to him to rule, to live. And as we did the communion, it is his body, his blood that was poured out for our sins. And anyone, it says here, whoever believes in him will have eternal life forever to live with him in glory. What a promise. Sometimes we think, well, we're living in this world right now struggling. But we need to picture that. That we don't live for the now. We live for the eternal. That's why there are many exhortations in the Bible about that. Listen to the other words here in scripture. And this is eternal life. That they may. They know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have known. Notice the word know you. Again the emphasis there of of reality of experience. This is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. There's another promise that I have read, I've learned about, and I struggled in my life with, and that's Romans 8.1. And it's very familiar. A lot of people can quote it. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I, I've known that verse, but it was a few years back. I was really bothered because I was still struggling with sin in my own self And I go to church, and then I feel like, bum, bum. I felt like I was pressed down and I was feeling guilt and attacked almost. And one day the light went on because God's word has to be like that. It's like, all of a sudden I'm going, what? No condemnation. Now it hit me in a new way. Any condemnation that comes in my life as a Christian is not from God. None. Because it's paid. It's paid. So any condemnation I feel is not from God, it's from Satan. The only thing that comes from God is conviction. The Holy Spirit, when he convicts, he convicts in a very gentle, powerful, but non-condemning way. That's the difference. And when you read a verse like that and you go, whoa, what a promise. I believe that. And it becomes experience to me. Question want to ask you, how does God's gracious provisions of living a godly life through knowing Christ and his promises become a reality when our experience is the opposite? So we see the graciousness of God providing these things for us. But what about the reality that I may experience the opposite of this? And the key here is Peter mentions it. In verse 1, he talks about to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with others. He refers to their faith. In verse 5, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He's again saying, faith. Faith is assumed by Peter. Peter, in his first letter to the Christians in his In the chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it says to a living hope Christians have been called to. They're born again to a living hope, to an inheritance kept in heaven. How? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who are kept by God's power. By being guarded by their faith. Give you an example in, in Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter by many. And I remember when I was a young Christian, that's what I labeled Hebrews 11, in which men and women demonstrated faith in God's promises, some being powerful, successful, they overcame things, while others suffered and were rejected by men in the world and died. All trusted in God, whether in success or not, according to this world. And Sarah was an example in verse 11 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, we've discussed some of these truths here, and she had a problem. She was too old, basically. God comes along and says, Sarah, you're going to have a son. That's the promise. Sarah considered it, and she believed in the faithfulness of God. Then, when God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And then it says, in power, she conceived. Notice. So there was the promise, there was the faith, and there was the power. They followed. God's power became so powerfully working through her faith in what he promised. How many times do we have to learn that, that God's power is reflected through his promises and through his character and that his power will work as we believe. Think of life situation. What situation are you facing in your life? What promise applies to it? Will you? You trust his word and pray and act according to it? Think about physical issues in your life. What is God doing in your struggle? How is his power working in it? What is God's power doing? Is he not there? Strength through his word? I I mean, I heard one person that we know personally who has gone through an operation, part of her tongue being taken away. and She couldn't talk very well for a while. And um, I heard maybe about a week ago or so that obviously she gets discouraged. And God gave her special verses. He gave her special verses to help her to go through this problem. God doesn't say, I'm just removing the world and its problems. He was saying to her, I'm going to be with you through this. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to strengthen you through his word and he brought scripture to her mind. Other times we are praying for healing and there may be the healing miraculous God can do that today. Or there can be the strength through the inner man where he strengthens us to be able to endure in that physicalness and pain and it's real but we're not left alone. He said he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a promise. Think about temptations that you face. What temptation are you continually facing? How does God's power work in your situation? What promise are you learning concerning temptation? What warnings are you learning from knowing him through his word? There are. It's not only promises. There's things that God will warn us about. But you don't know that if you don't know his word, if you don't know the commune with him, if you don't have that relationship. Knowing him, having a knowledge of him is more than just knowing it. Think about needs that you have. You need a job. You need wisdom for a particular situation. How does God's power and promise relate to your situation? A pastor can tell you, well, this is what you should do. Your elder says, this is what you should do. Maybe you should realize that God creates problems in our lives so that you will look in his word, so that you will learn what to do. Because it's not just us leaning on others. God is trying to teach us we live by his word. What promises have you learned? Have people been praying for you in your, in, in your needs? I know that in our small group, we, there have been things shared. We've prayed for people. We've seen God give wisdom to people. And that's a reality in the, in the small group. God's power through prayer. Scripture says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Think about that. When you make God's kingdom a priority, he says, I'll, I'll take care of all you needs. In my way, though, not according to what you think, but my way. I will meet your every need, is what he says. And I've proven that in my life. I believe that with all my heart. That God has never failed that word in my life. Think about marriage marriage, and parenting. We all struggle with relationships, whether single or married. We are a broken people in a fallen world. And only the power of God can help us to be godly. We need to know the Lord better to see his sovereign work through the relationship. Remind yourself of Romans 8.28. Always think of that verse. He's working. He's working all things out. He's working. How many times do I be, have to be reminded of that? Yeah, he's working in this situation. I remember th- last week, the situation I was in, and, I, and God says, well, you're, you're studying for this. Are you are you uh, realizing what I have to remind you? Continually? This problem is there because you need it. Okay. Thank you, Lord. God's goal is our sanctification. So let Him work in your heart. We are hurt. We are damaged people. And we need His power. We need His healing. Allow His power to work in your weakness. See His hand in life situations. There is a portion I just want to read Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 22. I know it's a long portion, but it's something I want to read to you and I want you to think about. It'll be closing up with this. Final thoughts. It's a prayer that Paul made for the Ephesians. And I want to pray this for you. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and I've heard of your faith, your walk with God, Your love for each other. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. That I would be praying for you as an elder. As leaders in this church. That we care for each one of you. Where you're at. Where you're going. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father of glory. May give you the spirit of wisdom. And of revelation. In the knowledge of him. He's Going back to the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts. Enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Immeasurable greatness of his power. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly place. Think, the resurrection power... Is in every believer. Far above all rules. This is Jesus being exalted. Authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age. But also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The prayer he makes for the Ephesians. Is that their eyes of their hearts may be under open. More than anything we need in the church today. Is that our eyes be open to his glory. To who he is. What he's given the church. And Paul prayed this for the Ephesians. They were believers. They loved the Lord. But he basically said that that the Lord would give them the spirit of wisdom. Revelation and knowledge of him. And that we would see more clearly his power in life. So I'm going to give you three reminders. Three reminders. To remember. One, through the knowledge of our Lord, we have all power for living a godly life. Two, through the promises of our Lord, we may partake of his divine nature. Three, through faith, we live out these truths. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we need to be changed. We as your people need to be sanctified. You've called us to be holy and you take us through the process of sanctification through people, through circumstances, through your word, through your spirit who lives within us. Would you speak to our hearts and change us because we need to be changed so that we become more like Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen.